And if you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open to the book of Hebrews, uh, the end of chapter 1, we're going to be there. As you're turning there, let me pray for us. God, we come before you to glory in all that you've done for us. To revel and delight. And Lord, we think of those mysterious, wonderful, and specific things like what you did on the cross. And yet we also think of what you've done in your word by granting it to us that we might learn and understand. And Lord, you do it in those very specific and personal ways. So Lord, we are in awe. The way that you would call us out and reveal yourself fully to us. At least as fully as we can grasp. So God, I pray over these next few minutes as we consider your word. Lord, give us understanding and insight. Help us to know how we might be able to Apply your word individually and corporately in community. God, we pray that you would speak by your the the words are on this that are on these pages. But God, we also pray that you would speak by the still small voice of your spirit. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, There's a gentleman by the name of Martin Carter, and he is an organizational consultant. And a few years ago, he wrote a a blog post on LinkedIn. And he tells this story. He writes, in 1979, Air New Zealand Flight 901 crashed into Mount Erebus in Antarctica, killing all 279 people on board. The root cause was a two-degree change in the flight coordinates over which the flight across the Southern Ocean placed the aircraft 28 miles to the east of where the pilots assumed they were. He continues, two degrees is a tiny margin of error. It's about the limit of accuracy that a skilled pilot can achieve flying manually in good conditions. Hence, even the most experienced pilots expect to find themselves off course Which is why every pilot is taught the one in 60 rule, which states that if your initial heading is off by just one degree after 60 miles, you'll be one mile off course. The one in 60 rule enables pilots to regularly check and correct their headings. Pilots who fail to do so often or accurately enough soon find themselves a long way from their intended destination with potentially disastrous consequences. The best pilots are those who have the humility to admit that as good as they might be, they aren't perfect and hence need to constantly check and recheck that they are still on track. And he continued in his article, he talked about the importance of of evaluating where we are personally and professionally to make sure that we're on course, we're on path with the things that we want to do. But I think that also applies to us spiritually. We face influences both internal and external that pull us away from the course that God has designed for us. 
whether it's cultural pressures to accept every moral change or peer pressure to compromise on biblical standards or even those internal pressures from doubts that are planted by the enemy or even simply our own sinful nature that cause us to to drift. These pressures are real and we need to pay attention to that. And the writer of Hebrews addressed this to some of his, the Jewish background believers who were experiencing some of those pressures. We talked last week about how he, in the whole book of, of Hebrews, he's really laying out an argument, communicating that Jesus is greater, Jesus is better. And last week, we looked at the foundation of that, that Jesus is God incarnate. In the chapters that we're going to consider today, we'll get to see a declaration about the supremacy of Jesus over angels. And then we'll also get to consider the explanation that he has of how Jesus' humanity doesn't make him inferior. And then an exhortation to obey Jesus' teaching in order to avoid the drift that is bound to happen. And so before we dive into that, though, I want to just say kind of as a side note, as I prepare each week, I try to, you know, I spend a lot of time in scripture, but I also spend a lot of time reading commentaries. And if you ever want to understand what are all these other sources that I'm looking at, when we publish the, the sermon, usually it happens Monday morning sometime, you can click and see the, see the script that I'm using. You'll see all the notes, all the, the footnotes and all of the, uh, the sources, and you're welcome to, to check those out and, and look at those. But as we begin, let's, let's begin with the declaration. If you want to follow along in your notes, you're welcome to do that. But he really lays out this declaration in verses 4 through 14 of chapter 1 by stating that Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than the angels. And you might be asking yourself the question, so what? What's the big deal about angels? You know, there are some who have a fascination about angels today. Sometimes we picture them as those fat little beings, right? With wings, humanoid-like beings, and they have a bow and arrow, and they're going to shoot someone in order to make you fall in love with them or them fall in love with you. We think of someone like Cupid. He's a cute little angel. Right. There are other people who like to see angels as being these beautiful and majestic things with large feathery wings. Sometimes we even just use their figurines as a form of semi-religious decorations, thinking that they are somehow protecting us from something. But in Scripture, angels are seen as terrifying and majestic beings. In fact, so often when an angel would show up to talk to someone, the very first thing they had to say was, fear not, do not be afraid, because these, these guys were, I think, were, they were terrifying. But we have to recognize that angels are simply messengers. Angels are simply messengers. They are beings that go from the throne room of God and bring messages on behalf of God to humanity. And there was a Jewish belief that when Moses wrote down the Torah, when he wrote down the law, that he received it from angels. And so then by stating that, that Jesus is greater than angels, the writer of Hebrews is really implying Jesus is greater than the Torah, than the very thing that the angels taught to Moses. But how? 
How is Jesus better? And so he lays out some arguments here. And I want to just present those before us because what he does, he begins by stating that Jesus has a greater name than the angels. Look at what it says in verse four. It says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, at face value, it doesn't sound like much. In fact, even Romeo, he said, what's in a name? When he and his, the love of his life was from another family and he was not allowed to associate with them. But the significance of a better name, I think, is lost to us in some degree, to some degree. Michael Kruger, in his commentary, notes that in Roman culture, he says, when sons came of age, they were formally bestowed the family name, even though, to some degree, they already had it. So there, at a certain time, a, a boy would, would, would receive his father's name, even though he had already been the child of his father for this whole time. But which name is the writer of Hebrews referring to? We could look at really any of his names. I mean, we think of Jesus, Jesus himself. That name is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua which means Yahweh saves. He is truly the one who saves. As angels being merely messengers, they are not equal to the task that God has given the one named Jesus Christ to save. But we could also think about the name Emmanuel. We see um, the book of Matthew quoting from Isaiah when he refers to Jesus as Emmanuel, which means God with us. We thought about that last week with the idea that Jesus being God incarnate, now he's fully God and fully human. He is truly God with us. But he doesn't reference any of those names in in the verses that we're going to consider today. In fact, the name that he uses isn't a name at all. The name that he uses is the title Son. He calls Jesus the son. And this is not an inferior name or title, but it's an affirmation as again, Kruger notes that he shares the same eternal and divine nature as the father. Jesus even said, I and the father are one. Look at what it says in verse five. He writes to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son today. I have begotten you or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So imagine for a moment that you're in this medieval courtroom and you have a king or a throne room, rather a medieval throne room. You have a king or queen. You have all the attendants. You have all these messengers, all these ambassadors, these people with a whole lot of power and a whole lot of authority. None of them have the same access to the king as the children do. None of them have the same access or really, the, the, and none of them will ever. And we think even about the, the royal family in England. For anyone other than someone in the family line to be king, there would have to be a coup. So Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne as son. But not only does Jesus have, an, have a greater name, The writer of Hebrews continues by stating that Jesus is even worshipped by the angels. Look at verse 6. He says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let God's angels worship him. 
We like to dote on things. We like to pay attention to the stuff. Some of you might be one of those guys who likes to read a lot about various things. And we'll, we'll, we'll look at all these things and we think, wow, that's really cool. That's really exciting. So we might dote on something that is inferior to us. But we don't worship those things. We worship only that which is greater, that which is superior. So the angels are recognizing that Jesus is the object of their worship because he is greater than they are. And as if having a better name and being the object of their worship isn't enough, we also see that Jesus rules the angels. Being on equal footing with God by nature of his position, he rules the angels and everything else. And look at verses 8 and 9. It says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And then also in verse 13, the writer of Hebrews says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You see, the bottom line is that Jesus is greater than the angels. In fact, the the writer of Hebrews summarizes this in verse 14 by stating about the angels. Are they not ministering spirits, spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? They exist to serve Jesus, to benefit those who would believe those who would receive God's salvation. Now, I want you to think about it like this. Think about this hierarchy that exists. You have God, Jesus, the Son. You have the Holy Spirit as the pinnacle, as, as, as the greatest beings in all of the universe over all time. And then lower than them, you have the angels. And then lower than them, you have humanity. God, angels, humanity. Now, this introduces a problem, and I think this is a problem that the writer of Hebrews was really dealing with there in the first century, is that if Jesus is God incarnate, if Jesus is human, doesn't that make him inferior to the angels? And so that's the the thing that he gets to in this next section where he explains in verses two through in chapter two, verses five through 18, that Jesus humanity does not make him inferior to. To the angels. Jesus' humanity doesn't disqualify him from being superior. You see, one of the challenges that existed in the first century is the belief that all flesh, everything that we can see and touch, was evil and wicked. And therefore, a lot of people believed that Jesus could not have come in the flesh because that would have made him wicked and sinful. But there's an element to which Jesus' humanity actually helps his case. And he maintains his superiority. And he helps our situation as well. And so consider what, what, what the writer of Hebrews says here. Essentially that Jesus recovered the dominion that humanity corrupted. You see, at creation, God told Adam and Eve, he said, to have dominion over all creation, to, to steward it, to take care of it. And in many ways, we still have that dominion. We still are called to steward the creation that God has placed us over. But as with the previous argument, the writer defends his claim by quoting Scripture. 
And he again quotes in the Psalms and then in, in verses 6 through 8. And then he comments on it in verses 8 and 9. Look at what it says. Look in your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, in many ways there's this work in progress that God is doing through Jesus Christ as we come to him, as we, uh, as we become the people that he has called us to be. But because Jesus condescended, because he lowered himself to our station, he could relate and he could live out the mandate that we were called to live. He could show us how it was to be done. But not only did he recover the dominion that humanity messed up, but he also regained the dignity that humanity corrupted. You see, we are stained and undignified because of our sin. Now, I know that today that is not popular to think about. In fact, some people, I've heard people talk recently that all humanity is basically good. And we, we like to think, yeah, I'm good. You're good. We're all good. Little babies that are good. But here's the challenge we run into. If we assume that humanity is good, then when evil happens, we recognize that some part of humanity went bad. But when we, when, we, when we take it the other way and we recognize that God is the one who is good and humanity was created in, was, is created, intended to be perfect, but fallen be, because of the sin of our ancestors. Now when there's good things, we see the grace of God on that. When we see wickedness and evil, we realize, well, that's just who we are. So we need God to come and redeem that. And that's what Jesus Christ did when he, re, re, when he regained the dignity that, he, that we as humans had corrupted. Look at what it says in verses 10 through 11. He says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their, of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Warren Wearsby in his commentary writes that Christ gave up his glory to become a man. And he regained his glory when he arose and ascended to heaven. And now he shares that glory with all who trust him for salvation. He is bringing many sons and daughters to glory. He is redeeming that dignity, that, that impurity that is in us. That is something Jesus does that God is doing through Jesus Christ. And since angels are not human, their mandate is different than ours. They do not have the same nature and cannot relate fully to our dominion or our dignity. They have a dignity of their own. Angels have something completely different to do from us. In fact, we have to keep in mind that angels were not created in the image of God, but we were. But we also see that by being human, Jesus rescued humanity from death. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension freed us from the eternal slavery that we live in because of our sin. 
Look at what it says in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And the author then brings his main argument about Jesus' supremacy over angels by stating in verse 16, Surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He helps us as his people. So we've seen Jesus' greatness even in his humanity explained in how he recovers, how he regains, how he rescues but finally, because Jesus came in the flesh, and this is one thing I think we overlook so often, Jesus relates to the devices of fallen humanity. Jesus relates to the devices of fallen humanity. Jesus understands our weaknesses. He understands how powerful temptation can be. He understands fully, and he relates to our struggles because he came in human form. He understands that temptation. Hebrews two seventeen to 18 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I hope we can find some encouragement in that. Knowing that when we were tempted, when we are tempted, Jesus understands. He was tempted in every way, even as we are. And yet, he did not sin. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus overcame the temptations that we face. So the writer of Hebrews here has laid out this declaration. He says, look, Jesus is greater than angels. Do you think angels are awesome? Yeah, they're pretty amazing. And they brought a great message to Moses. Yeah, that is super cool. But Jesus is better than that. So pay attention. And then he explains, just because Jesus became a human doesn't disqualify him from being superior, from being greater. So we get this final exhortation. And this is in a, if you're following along in your notes, we skipped over a small section. And in this exhortation, we essentially hear the writer of Hebrews saying, obey Jesus' teaching in order to avoid the drift. In order to avoid that getting off course that we talked about at the beginning. We should work to stay on course and avoid the drift that can happen in some subtle, very small, and also in very overt ways. Look at what it says in, in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. He says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution... How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. And while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. You see, just as pilots have to recalibrate 
and adjust their course while they're flying. We too need to pay attention to the teachings that we have heard. We need to pay attention to those things that are before us. In fact, I want you to, Steve, can we bring up that verse again? Verses one through four. I want you to notice just very briefly, what is the pronoun that, that the writer of Hebrews is using here? What? Therefore, we. Therefore, we. He's including himself in this challenge, in this process. We must pay closer attention. It's first person plural. It is we or us. And so often as Americans, we like to think of I, me. It's all about me. There's that famous country song, right? We, we like to be totally independent. But the Christian life, I believe, is intended to be lived in community. In fact, if you notice, when there, there are those times when we begin to fall off course, when we begin to drift, we often drift because we're flying solo. We're getting away from that community that God has called us to be a part of. I'm reading a, an excellent book right now by a guy named Ajit Fernando. He's a, a Sri Lankan guy who spent 40 or 50 years with, with Youth for Christ in discipling ministries. The book is entitled Discipling in a Multicultural World. But essentially, in these discipling environments, they would consider Scripture together. Just Sometimes it's just two or three. Sometimes it's five or six people. But they would do this intentionally seeking to submit themselves to the Word of God so that they together might fully honor God and how they live. I believe we need each other to point out blind spots in our lives. I need you to help me understand those places where I'm falling short of the glory of God. We need each other in that. And I think one of the things the writer of Hebrews points out here is that since the message of the angels carried to Moses and since it was there to, in order to implement the sacrificial system and the covenants for the people of Israel, since that was trustworthy and revealed exact disciplines that people would receive for their sins. He's essentially saying, since we can trust that, how much more should we trust what Jesus taught us? The one who brought us eternal salvation. Now, I realize that there are some of us who've come from backgrounds and churches that were shame-based and legalistic and demanding. And I know that there are times when churches like ours, Baptist churches, don't always, haven't always gotten this right in the past. But I hope that we can get it right. Be grace-filled the way that Jesus taught. I think when we get a little bit too legalistic, we need to submit to the Word of God, submit to Christ together in order to change that reputation. So how can we avoid drifting? How can we truly obey God? And I've, I've, in your notes, there are like seven words, and I'll give you a hint. They all start with R because every good pastor needs to alliterate sometimes. And these might be a bit simplistic, but I hope we can see that it's not rocket science. It's something, these are things I believe that God has ordained for us individually and in community to help us walk in holiness before him. So the first thing is simple. Read the word. 
We can't obey what we don't know. And I think that this means we need to read it individually. I hope that I hope that you're making time for the word of God to be embedded in your mind and on your heart. Reading individually, but also reading in community. Reading in in classes, we've been talking for several months now about discipleship, discipleship groups, getting things started in each neighborhood of town. And, you know, we've yet to really get that going. But if you'd be open to being a part of a pilot, let me know. Danielle and I would love to get some things going. We can start somewhere so we can begin to consider the word of God together. And apply it to our lives. But not only do we read the word. Secondly you can see there we reflect on it. We get to think through what it says. And the implications of what it means. And I got to tell you. This is something that I struggle with on my own. As I'm listening to the word of God. Sometimes I don't take the time to really reflect on it. I don't know if you guys are like me. My mind is going all over the place. So for me to really focus, it is difficult to do. Maybe I've got ADD and I was just never diagnosed. I don't know. But there's something beautiful that happens when we get to discuss and consider the word of God together, when we get to reflect on it. Because your perspectives and your understanding and, and God, the experiences that God has brought to you can bear light on that in different ways than what I can see. And it's not that we impose us on the word of God, but we flip it over and allow the word of God to speak into our lives, reflecting on what is there. But third, we need to repent. And I know this is something we all love to do, right? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is literally turning the other way and and doing a 180. And let me encourage you, if you've not yet turned to Christ, Check out what he has done for you. Check out what he has done for you. Reflect on why that's important for here and for eternity. And take that step of repenting, saying, God, I am sorry. I know that I am a sinner and and I'm in need of your salvation. And I'd be happy to walk you through that process, what that looks like if you're not yet a follower of Christ. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to regularly do the same. We have to regularly recognize that there are things that we allow into our lives that get off course. And I think when we're drifting, we're beginning to get off course. We have to recognize that repentance is really turning the dial back and saying, oh, no, I got to come back here. God, I'm sorry that I got out here. Let me come back. Even though our salvation is secured in Jesus, we can still get off course. In those moments of anger, when we begin to lash out at people at a, at, at a poor time, there, you know, there's righteous anger and that's justified, but sometimes we just get angry because we're just angry. And sadly, it's our family members that often feel the brunt of that the most, at least in my house, that is. Or those poorly chosen words or that conversation that delves into gossip. I think we need to repent. That click on the Internet, even that extra helping of food or that extra drink, that lustful gaze and more. We must repent 
to God and get back on track. I think we also need to be willing to repent to one another. That's why we do life in community. If you read through the New Testament, you'll notice there are over 50 one another statements. That's why we do it together, because we are in this together. But fourth, we get to recalibrate. It's one thing to drift off course and to recognize, oh, I'm not where I should be. But now we have to adjust. We have to recalibrate. We have to get back in line. The book of James urges us not to be hearers of the word only, but to be doers. And I want to encourage you, encourage me, that we are wasting our time if all we do is hear. We are wasting our time if all we do is listen to the word. If all we do is read it and think, okay, that was good. Check. I did my duty for today. But there are, there are adjustments that we will need to make. And it comes from us listening to, reading, reflecting, recalibrating, repenting, obeying the word of God, and putting our lives back in alignment with what the word says. Sometimes that'll be subtle. Sometimes it'll be just whoop, a little click. Oh, let me not say that word. That one's a little bit too out of line. Sometimes it will be drastic. Sometimes it will be... Let me get a dumb phone because my smartphone leads me in too many bad places. Again, I want to encourage us. This is not legalism, but it's grace. It's a grace-filled process of sanctification, allowing our lives to more and more reflect Christ. So not only do we read and reflect, repent, recalibrate, but because we're human, we get to repeat. We get to go back through it, back through it, and back through it. What's that story about children as they're learning to walk, how many times they have to fall down? And it's the same thing for us. We're going to make mistakes over and over and over again. And yet as we submit our lives to the word of God, as we allow the word to to instruct us in how we live, we're going to come back to that. To continue to read, reflect, repent, recalibrate. Do it again. Read, reflect, repent, recalibrate. And do it again. Read, reflect, repent, recalibrate. Until that day when Jesus Christ comes back and he sees you and he says, oh my goodness, look, I'm looking at me. I see this man or woman of God that has, has gone through this process and, and has lined up with me willingly. May we do that. The bottom line here is that the angels, when they conveyed the messages to Moses, They brought a sacrificial system that had some very specific, if you do this, kill this animal. If you do this, you need to be stoned. If you do this, here are the disciplines and all these things. It was very structured and very legal. And Jesus Christ came and he said, we're done with those imperfect sacrifices. I am the perfect sacrifice. 
So as we continue to grow in grace, we get to honor him as we live obediently. So let me encourage you. Continue to read, reflect, repent, recalibrate. Not only alone, but in community with one another. This is, we don't get to be Lone Ranger Christians. We get to be a family. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the encouragement to keep ourselves aligned with you. And Lord, I pray that you would give us discernment, give us understanding in those places where we've gotten off course. Where we don't fully honor you. God, we know that in us there is not the will and the power to be holy. Lord, help us to stay on course. Help us to follow you in obedience. Yielding our lives to your word, leading, yielding our lives to your Holy Spirit as you direct us. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.